invite you to open up your Bibles. Whoever said that out loud, you have thrown me now. It's going to take me a bit. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 3. Uh, that's in your Pew Bible on page 740. If you're using the Bible app, that's the Version app. Tap more, the equal sign, events, all at the bottom. And then Grace Lutheran Church will pop up, and you'll go right to our scripture. I mentioned this. We, in the lighting of our Advent candle, we sort of uh, tip the hand on this. But we're entering into a new season with the arrival of Thanksgiving. And in the midst of the decorations, I should also point out, if you were not able to be with us on Thanksgiving Eve, on each of the windows, you see what we, we left for other people to take in, the opportunity for people to share what they were thankful for. On the far uh, wall over there were moments with God that people were thankful for, expressing what their year was like in a word, and then specific people they were thankful for. And as you can see, as this was, again, a reflection of our Thanksgiving celebration, many things up there are joyous, but some people were also sharing out of a tough year, out of their pain. And so we just, we left that up for you to take in, but also left that up as just a continuance of our worship as we transition from a time of thanks into this season. And <laughs> you know that it, the holiday season is officially underway. Unless you're hiding under a rock, you know the countdown is on. Right? We have begun to run the gauntlet that began with Black Friday, that extends through Cyber Monday, we're not done yet, and then leads all the way to Christmas Eve and on through New Year's Day. Are you feeling like I am already? I mean, did you have it like the moment you were done with your turkey on Thanksgiving, the anticipated busyness of the next few weeks start to weigh on your shoulders? Yeah, right? It's, it's, a, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and it's the most stressful time of the year, as this, we just sense the busyness that's ahead for us. And so in the, in, in the light of that, I want to invite us, invite you, to enter into a decidedly different space this morning. It's, in fact, a space that was carved out long ago. It was actually set apart by our spiritual ancestors before the holidays went commercial, before the season became packed tighter than a stocking hanging by a fireplace. We're so accustomed, you and I, to counting the days to Christmas in terms of this headlong sprint that's marked by buying and shopping and sending and giving that we've lost our memory of this sacred sanctuary from the holiday rush. And this sacred space that I'm referring to is what is known as Advent. And for those of you who are not familiar with that word, Advent means coming or arrival. And Advent in the history of the church begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, today, and ends, in fact, on Christmas Eve. And the thing that's significant about Advent that contrasts where we kind of find ourselves every year around this time is Advent is less inclined towards doing, and it's dedicated more towards being. Advent directs our focus in the midst of kind of not knowing where to look or kind of being overwhelmed. Advent directs our focus in three interrelated directions. We look back to the past, remembering what's been done unto us, done for us in the coming of God in the flesh, in Jesus Christ leading all the way to the cross and through the resurrection, but we also look towards the future. We at Advent anticipate what will be done when Christ returns to make all things new. The past, the future, but Advent also orients us in the present. The remembrance and celebration of Advent reorients us in terms of where we find ourselves today. We sang, as part of our, uh, our worship this morning, Emmanuel, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And the message of Christmas is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. Our celebration this holiday season is not only because Jesus has come, it's not only because he will come again to inaugurate his kingdom, we celebrate because he is present in this world today through his Spirit. 
And so we at Grace are going to acknowledge those things, and we're going to and undertake our journey through Advent by way of an unconventional unconven- route. We're going to color a little outside the lines. And if you've opened up your Bible, you probably noticed that. We're going to still remain grounded, don't worry, in the traditional biblical stories related to the season. You'll hear about Mary, you'll hear about Joseph, Elizabeth, Zachariah, shepherds, angels, the whole thing. But we are going to seek to penetrate the mystery and the majesty of Christmas by way of a conversation. A conversation the adult Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. And you're gonna hear this conversation four times as we go through Advent. And I want you to hear it four times and we're gonna take it apart little piece by piece because I believe their dialogue radically frames our understanding of what Christmas is really all about. So if you have your Bibles open, let me read to you from John, the Gospel of John chapter three, starting in verse one. Read it with me. John writes, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher said Jesus, and you, do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When a pregnancy occurs or plans for an adoption begin to take place, there is a natural desire to share this news with those we know and love. In fact, today this tradition has grown to include, as many of you know, the crafting and sending of a formal birth announcement to one's family and friends. And the reason the birth announcement has become so popular is because such announcements prepare and excite the community for the coming child. But you know, in the history of birth announcements, none can compare with the surprising and angelic revelation a young couple named Mary and Joseph receive. I mean, after all, they weren't expecting to be expecting. Now, while they certainly weren't the first couple to find themselves in that situation, they certainly were the only ones to learn they would be delivering the Son of God. When the angel Gabriel announced first to Mary and then later to Joseph they were going to have a child, they both learned that this would be no ordinary child. This child would be the eternal heir of the throne of David, the Redeemer of Israel, the fulfillment of a covenant forged with a prophecy given to one nation. And in so being, this child would become the fulfiller of a promise made to all nations of the world at large. He would be the savior of all. 
the king of kings, establishing the reign of God, this child would fulfill the prayer for life on earth to be as it is in heaven, bringing peace on earth and goodwill to everyone. It's this birth announcement that gives us, as we like to say, the reason for the season. It is this glorious news of the coming of this child of God in the flesh who comes to give us life so that we all might live, that lies behind all the celebration, all the optimism, all the generosity of Christmas. And yet, as this encounter we just read between the babe become man, the adult Jesus and the older Nicodemus reveals, for all of our celebrating, for all of our amazement and wonder at Christmas time, perhaps we haven't fully grasped the incredible significance of this birth announcement. In fact, we can be so focused on the birth of the child in the manger that we can miss the implications of Christ's coming of how we receive this precious gift. I told you you're going to hear this dialogue three more times, and today we're just going to focus on the first three verses as we enter into kind of what I'm getting at in a very indirect way. Nicodemus speaks, and Jesus responds, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. After Nicodemus begins the conversation, Jesus comes back with a birth announcement. I think we've lost the impact of this. I think we've lost the impact of what Jesus says here. And, and, and I think it's probably because, as many of you know, we've recently, in the last couple of decades, co-opted the phrase, born again, right? Over the last few decades, intentionally or unintentionally, this phrase, born again, has become a filter for a particular ideological perspective, even to the point of becoming more of a political fault line where one stands on certain issues. But I want us to hear this word, this, this, what Jesus says here a little differently outside of that filter. The Greek word that's used here, anothen, the Greek word that's used anothen for, it's translated in your Bible as again, can also mean anew or from above. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born anew. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born from above. And to further help us to appreciate what Jesus is saying here, notice in these first three verses, and he continues later, how he pairs that particular word from above, anew, again, with, this, with speaking of the kingdom of God. And that pairing helps us to kind of get at the heart of what he's trying to communicate. For those of you who are into such things, what's really interesting to me is this is the only place in John's gospel where Jesus uses the phrase, the kingdom of God. Now, that should surprise you if you've been with us for a bit. In the summertime, we did a series on the kingdom parables. And if nothing else, you should remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have kingdom language all over the place. It's at the center of their gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus offers metaphor after metaphor of what the kingdom of God is like. You might remember, it's like a seed thrown out and landing on different types of soil. The kingdom of God is like a tiny seed, the smallest of all seeds you can imagine, which grows into this tree that the birds can live in. It's like the yeast overtaking the dough. It's like the treasure hidden in a field. It's like a net that hauls in a great catch of fish. But in John's gospel, only here, only to Nicodemus is one of the most beautiful images in all scripture for seeing and entering the kingdom of God, the grace and glory of God's reign. Kingdom life, life with Christ, following Jesus, Jesus says, is like a pregnancy, a birth process. It's being born anew, being born from above. The message of Christmas, in other words, as we start our journey, is birth 
brings birth. All the awe, all the wonder, the breathtaking glory of the incarnation of God becoming flesh is not to be confined to what happened in Bethlehem. Beloved, the birth announcement we celebrate this time of year isn't just about that baby in a manger. It's also the revelation of the transforming work of the new life that God seeks to bring about in us. It's our birth announcement. Emmanuel, God with us and for us, is not only God coming to us in Christ, but God coming to us through Christ. God has placed us in a womb, an intimate, loving, and nurturing space of relationship where we are fearfully and wonderfully shaped into the children of God we were intended to become. If you're sitting here this morning and this is a new take for you, if this birth announcement, our birth announcement is new to you, news to you, it really shouldn't be. Because if we're familiar with the word at all, if we're in our Bibles, the Apostle Paul in his writings, and there's lots of writings that we have from Paul, the Apostle Paul, if you don't notice this in his writings, often gets captivated by this announcement, this broader understanding of God continuing to dwell with humanity in Jesus Christ. There are so many scriptures I could point you to that it would take up the rest of our time, so I'm gonna give you the briefest of samplings. But consider when Paul writes in Galatians chapter four, my children, with whom I again am in labor until Christ is formed in you. Or much earlier, my favorite in Galatians chapter two, when Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And if that's too heady and fancy for you, then take Paul in his most simplest expression of this truth. In 2 Corinthians chapter five when he writes, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. This is our birth announcement. And this is an announcement that Nicodemus needed to hear, but if you were paying attention, he clearly wasn't expecting, right? Do you catch that in this dialogue? Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus didn't even ask, right? I, I love this in the first three verses. Nicodemus starts the conversation by telling Jesus who Jesus is. This is who you are. And what I love is Jesus responds by sharing with Nicodemus who Nicodemus is invited to become. Have you received this announcement as we enter into the Advent season? John also shares something else with us that I find interesting in the first three verses. He shares with us that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. If you look at your Bibles, you might just catch that. You might just be, you think it's a quick throwaway. I don't, I, John doesn't point things out for a reason. And, and some have argued when it says Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, some have argued, well, Nicodemus came at night in order not to be seen with Jesus. Because if you didn't pick up on this, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And if you know anything about the Gospels, Pharisees weren't exactly fans of Jesus. Others have speculated, okay, well, the coming at night was just a matter of scheduling, you know? Night just happened to be the only time when Nicodemus and Jesus could get together. But I don't think so. I think if we look at the gospel of John as a whole, if you were to look at it as a whole, you'll notice that John again and again, again and again calls attention to the night, to nighttime in a particular way. He uses the night as a way of describing a condition or a circumstance. Let me give you a quick sampling. It's in John's gospel that John tells us Jesus says, night 
is that time when no one can work. It's in John's gospel that John records Jesus talking of the night as the time when there is no light in us, when we can't see the way forward and therefore we stumble. John specifically highlights that Judas went to betray Jesus at night. And coincidentally, or perhaps not, it's John who tells us that it was night. It was nighttime when the disciples were apart from Jesus. And do you remember this? They fished all night, but we were told they caught nothing. Nothing. For me, this little detail of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, I think is a reflection of a conflict in Nicodemus' life. And perhaps ours as well. I mean, just step away for a second. Think about it. Picture it in your mind. We have an ordinary man in Nicodemus, a guy who's just trying to live his life, you know, go about his business, right? His identity comes from what he does. We've been told he's a Pharisee. He has a role and a reputation as a leader of the Jews. His security comes from what he knows. And what does he know? He knows and applies the law, the Torah, His purpose comes from his particular place in society. He has power over others. The people listen to and follow him in his interpretation of the law. By day, Nicodemus seemingly knows who he is and appears to have everything going the way he expects it to. Everything is working according to his plans. But Nicodemus doesn't come to Jesus during the day. He comes at night. Darkness has fallen for him Something has happened. He separates from his group. Something has happened. Maybe it's a crisis of faith. Maybe something big has taken place, something that shook him up or knocked him down. Maybe it's nothing big, just some nagging, unsettled curiosity or uncertainty. You know, an inkling, an impulse, a shadow of doubt that just keeps hanging over him. Either way, Nicodemus is looking for something the daytime life just cannot give him. He's reached a point in his work, his accomplishments, his reputation, his place in society where it's not enough. They no longer provide the stability and the security for him that they once did. It's just not working anymore, you know? His nets just keep coming up empty. You been there? Nicodemus cannot see or understand the way he once did. He's stumbling. Nothing makes sense. He's in the dark, as we like to say. His daytime certainty has given way to nighttime questions. And you hear he repeats the same question more than once in this dialogue. How can this be? And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night looking for answers. And I'm pressing this because I don't think that Nicodemus is alone. We're all all of us in the dark at some point in our lives. We're all at some point stumbling and confused. Maybe you're there now. Maybe you've been there. You know what I'm talking about? By day, all is well, right? We work hard, don't we? We work hard to create a sense of identity, to carve out a place and a purpose, to give our life meaning and direction. We build our reputations. We earn recognition and approval. We want predictability and control. We prefer what is safe and familiar. So we buy, we save, we invest to ensure our security, our well-being. That we're covered, that's what counts, right? We're covered, right? That we can keep things going. That we can weather whatever storms come our way. Daytime life, my friends, is the life we make for ourselves. 
Daytime life is the life we make for ourselves. And before I lose you, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. We all do it. Each of us should make use of the gifts, the resources and opportunities put before us. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, the crisis comes if we rely on the life we create for ourselves. If the life we create for ourselves is where our identity, our purpose, and our security come from, we will never be content. We will never truly rest. Because the life we create for ourselves will always be incomplete. It will always be fragile. It will always be fleeting. No matter how full or beautiful or successful our daytime life is, the nighttime always comes. There's no escaping the dark. We all have to face the nighttime in our lives. Again, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you're there right now. That moment, right? That moment when everything gets turned upside down and nothing is certain. When life suddenly doesn't make sense and we don't understand. It made sense yesterday, it doesn't make sense today and we don't know why. When all appears to be hidden, when we fish but we catch nothing, when when all of our efforts prove fruitless and our nets remain empty, when the day becomes eclipsed by the shadows is the moment we are all confronted with our vulnerability, our fragility, our doubts. When the nighttime comes, that's the moment when we realize that we are unable to create and sustain life on our own terms that our perception of our control is much more limited than we care to admit. And when that happens, when the darkness falls, if our life has been based on the life we create for ourselves, we lose our identity. Who am I? We lose our meaning and our purpose. What, what am I here for? What's it all about? We lose our direction. Where am I supposed to go? We lose our security. What's going to happen to me? And we stumble. And in the dark, we begin to grasp for anything as we fall. Some of us choose not to go gently. We choose to rage, as Dylan Thomas once penned, against the dying of the light. And so some of us fill that void with pleasure, man. We party. Yes! Woohoo! Friday's coming. We try to escape the darkness by enjoying the fruits of our labor before the darkness can take it all away. But the thing is, the hangover always follows. And if we're not careful, the addiction comes next. And then we find ourselves enslaved by the very darkness from which we sought to flee. Some of us choose to fill that void by pleasure. Party on. Others of us, face the reality of this darkness by working even harder and longer. Our labor carries us into the night and we burn the midnight oil. If we just keep ourselves busy, if we just increase our productivity, if we just do more, we can make the darkness go away. We can get over the hump. We can do it, we'll do it better this time. We'll do it differently this time. Things will change and we'll get what we want. But no matter how much we do, no matter how much we multitask, no matter how much we accomplish, somehow we never quite get there. It still ends up that what we most want is always just beyond our grasp. 
And so we end up, many of us, maybe you're there, just more exhausted, right? More exhausted, more stressed, more unhealthy. Once again, more of a prisoner to this darkness that we're trying so hard to deny. I want to be clear here. What I'm describing isn't, whether it's partying on or working harder, isn't the the predicament or the situation that an outsider finds themselves in. It'd be very easy for us all sitting together in church to go, yep, that's what it's like for those people who don't believe in Jesus. That's what it's like for all those pagans, those secular people, those unbelievers. Don't kid yourselves. Don't kid yourselves this morning. What I'm describing here is not a condition that affects only the unbeliever, someone outside the faith, outside the church. Let's talk truth here this morning. And truth is this, it's worth noticing, and if you didn't catch this, you're going to catch it now. Nicodemus is a religious man. And let's assume the best about him. We have no reason not to. Let's assume the best about him. Nicodemus is a religious man. I believe Nicodemus is sincere in his belief in God. I believe he's sincere in following the traditions of his faith. And yet, even for him, a man who knows the Lord, as Jesus describes him, Israel's teacher, the darkness reveals the fragmentation, the division, the separation between the life he's trying to create for himself and the life God intends for him. My friends, the nighttime of life is that gap between the life we try to create for ourselves and the life God intends and declares and desires for us. The nighttime of life is the difference between being religious Being sincere in our belief about Jesus. Being devout in our observance of Christ. But still not engaging the person of Jesus Christ. Having a real relationship with God. You're here, and I don't want to make light of that. You call yourself a Christian, and we've had this conversation in this community. Think about what it means to be a Christian. How many people say they're a Christian, and how do we define exactly what that means? Lots of people call themselves Christians. What exactly does that mean? Because we have a lot of people who use that, identify themselves that way, but our understanding is not the same. You sit here this morning and you may say, well, I'm a Christian, and that's not what counts. It's not found in our Bibles. What matters, what Jesus is inviting Nicodemus into is not the label of being a Christian. He's inviting him to be a follower. And so the question I ask for you this morning is, are you a Christian or are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you sit here this morning, despite the singing, despite the praying, despite communion, all of it, do you come here week after week, and do you still, in the absolute reality of your life, the moments in between the worship services, do you still perceive God as distant and far away? Is your picture of God still that God's the big boss, the traffic cop? You know, God's up there, don't disturb him, don't make him angry, just do, go about your business, man. Or do you recognize This God who comes down to us in the flesh, who seeks to make personal contact, personal, who desires to be born in you. See, the great temptation of of the nighttime, it's to think if we just get the answer, you know, if we just get the, if we can just understand and explain it all, then we'll know what to do. 
But the nighttime of life is not a situation to be resolved. It's not a problem to be figured out. It's not a question to be answered. Nicodemus wants answers, man. He wants information. But that's not what Jesus offers. Jesus offers. Jesus invites Nicodemus not to flip on some artificial light in the darkness. Jesus offers. Jesus invites Nicodemus to be brought, to be pushed out and through the womb of his limitations and uncertainty, his doubts and his insecurity, and to be born anew, to be born from above. The good news is before Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, my friends, before we come to Jesus at night, Jesus comes to us in our darkest hour to push us through the contractions of this broken world, the difficult, uncomfortable, and painful labor of our sin, our mistakes, our failures, our limitations, our struggles, our doubts, even our pain. Christ dies for us so that we might live. And Christ conquers death so we can die without fear. And as we die to ourselves by the grace of God, we are born anew in Christ. This is our birth announcement. And this birth announcement isn't about reincarnation. Jesus isn't reborn in us. We are reborn in Christ. This birth announcement is the realization that the incarnation of Christ touches and embraces us too. You may have already found yourself in this place as the time of year. You've maybe started to decorate Put up the lights in your house. Put up the tree. You might pull out your nativity scene in your crutch. You'll hear the Christmas songs. At some point, it's going to hit you. You know, that, 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 that Christmas moment when you're suddenly going to let it sink in what Christmas is all about. And you're going to be rightly stunned once again by the mystery and the mercy and the compassion of a God who in the person of Jesus Christ takes on the weakness of human flesh in order to die for our sins and overcome death. And you should be rightly stunned. That moment's going to come and you should sit in it. But ask yourself, when's the last time you looked in the mirror and were similarly stunned to realize this same God, this same Jesus, this same spirit, this same divine DNA is also incarnate. It lives in you. You. Don't just be amazed that Jesus was born in a stable. Be amazed, be humbled, be overjoyed that Christ is born in you as well. Because when we understand this birth announcement, that this one who was born so many years ago can be born in us as well, we discover we can have the same life that Jesus has. Think about this. Jesus lived his earthly life, recorded for us in the Gospels. Jesus lived his earthly life, think about this, knowing first whose he was and then who he was. Let me unpack that for you. Everybody in the Gospels wants to know who Jesus is, right? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Do you notice how Jesus always answers that question? He never talks about who he is. He always talks about whose he is. Everything I do comes from the Father. I do nothing apart from the Father. He continues to point to the Father. Because for Jesus, what's the, the first thing that matters is knowing whose he is. And it's out of knowing whose he is that he knows who he is. Jesus' identity, in other words, emerged first out of his certainty and security as his father's child. And my friends, that is what is offered to us, to be born above 
from above is to know whose you are. It's to gain the certainty and security of knowing you are your father's child. That your personality, your personal identity is defined by this truth and nothing else. Your identity is defined by whose you are. It's out of knowing whose you are that you can know who you are. To be born anew is to know your provision, your purpose, your direction for your life will always be taken care of. Can you imagine that? Have you entered into that mystery? Imagine, just for a moment, imagine living a life where you don't have to prove yourself. And how many of us are sitting here and we're still trying to prove ourselves to other people, to validate ourselves? Imagine living a life where you don't have to prove yourself. Believe in living a life where you can know who you are because of whose you are. Imagine living a life where you don't have to earn anything. And for many of us, there's different ranges of years here, young or old, that's whether we say it or not functionally what our life comes down to. What are we earning? What have we done? What have we accomplished? What do we have to show for it? What kind of life have we built? Imagine living a life where you don't have to earn anything. Believe in living a life where everything you need to live and flourish is provided for. Everything you have, everything is, you've accomplished isn't because of what you've done. It's because of what God has given to you. Imagine. Imagine living a life where you don't have to justify your significance. And how many of us, no matter how old we are, how great our relationships, somewhere deep inside, we're still trying to justify our significance to a family member, to a spouse, to a child, to a friend, to justify that we matter, that we're, that we're significant, that we, we should be paid attention to. How many of us imagine living a life where you don't have to justify your significance? Believe in living a life where you know who you are and you know you're here for a reason and you know your life matters and you know that you have a purpose. And it doesn't depend on what anyone else thinks. This is the life Jesus lived abundantly. This is the life in Christ we can have too. Christ living in us, my friends, is not optional because the difference between a Christian and a disciple is a follower of Jesus is simply one in whom Christ lives and one in whom others see Jesus. Our flesh can become a home for the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Our character can be transformed into the character of Jesus. As God loves us into becoming children who have been born from above in our lives, in our thinking, in our behavior, in our compassion, in our kindness, in our forgiveness, and most of all, in our love, we can represent, we can reflect, we can reveal the living and risen Jesus Christ to each other. And we need to hear this birth announcement because the world is waiting. The longing for mercy that we hear out there, the desire for love that surrounds us, the cries for justice that we hear, the need for forgiveness, the promise of a better world is not to be found in a ceramic crutch or a wooden manger. Christ has come, the longing for mercy, the desire for love, the cries for justice, the need for forgiveness, and the promise of a better world, once birthed in Jesus Christ, are now delivered through us. The body of Christ, the church. My friends, J Jesus was given a body in Bethlehem, and in case we missed it, he was given a body through the church. 
We are the physical manifestation of his presence on earth. And therefore, in some sense, we are also part of the great incarnation. In God, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we move and have our being. We are vessels of his love. We become conduits of his life and instruments of his peace. If you're hearing me today, church, if this announcement is sinking in in any way, shape, or form, let me ask you this. Why settle? Why settle for recreating yourself one more time when Christ is dying to give you a life you could never create for yourself? Why settle? So, As we shop, as we decorate, as we bake and wrap, let us not become so busy that we forget to catch our breath. To enter into the peaceful stillness of a miraculous and mysterious birth that happened 2,000 years ago. Let us enter into that pregnant pause of Advent, this sacred space away from crowds and lines and traffic, and let us marvel at that first birth announcement that God comes to dwell with us. But in that sacred space, in that stillness, let us also marvel, be awed by the second one. The birth announcement that we are in fact the birthplace of Christ, that Jesus seeks to be born in you. This very moment, that Jesus seeks to be born in you, not just to save your life, but to radically change it, to transform it for the better, for the best, and not only for your best, but for the hope of the world. Because the hope of Christmas is the hope of the one who comes down to us, the hope of the one who dwells in us, the hope of a life that is given, the hope of a life that is sacrificed, the hope of a life that is resurrected, the hope of a life that seeks to be born anew through you and me. Amen.